Here once again the reading of God's Word. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors, five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. Take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart and put it in a box. At its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right hand or the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and it stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come now and take it up to you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to understand the holiness, Lord, that you have wrought in the work of your hands. Please help us, Lord, to have a greater insight into the world that you have created, into the nature of your rulership over that world. Bless us now, we pray with a little more grace from your Holy Spirit to know and to understand your word and to love it more as we seek to worship Christ Jesus in spirit and in truth. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, last time we, uh, it's been it's about six weeks now since we've been in it, so a little bit of recap. In chapter 4, we saw the Israelites fashion uh, an idol in the form of an ark, and they carried the ark off to battle the Philistines. And they were defeated. Then in chapter 5, we took a look at how God deals with idols and idolaters as the ark goes into the land of the Philistines. And our primary point there was that those who make idols become like them as God destroyed them. 
And now we come to chapter 6, and this really is a continuation of a, of a small subsection of 1 Samuel that's often called the Ark Narratives, right? Ever since, really, going back to chapter 3, we've been kind of following the Ark on it loosely and sometimes more directly as it goes through all these different episodes. And this is sort of the, the crowning episode that we come to in those Ark Narratives. However, you may have noticed that as, as, as we followed this Ark, there's something very unique about it. People keep dying based on their interactions with this ark, right? The Israelites abused it, and then they got slaughtered, like 30,000 of them. Then the Philistines got a hold of it, and they abused it, and they all died, or many of them died. And then we come to the end of this chapter that we just read, and some more people misuse or abuse the ark, and God wipes out much of an entire town. So there's something significant about this ark. And even what we're going to read tonight in 2 Samuel 6, you think of Uzzah, right? He reaches out and touches the ark. There's clearly something about it that leads to the fact that those who don't treat it properly end up dying or suffering severe consequences at the very least. And so in order to understand the significance of what happens in this text, and especially what happens at the end of it, we need to ask a question. What is so significant about the ark? What is so significant about it? We need to know what is significant about it and to, to, in order to understand what God does here and why He does it in that way. Now, you may think the answer to that question of what is the ark's significance is fairly simple. It's the ark of God, right? Duh, it's, it's God's ark. Well, yeah, that's true. But that needs to be fleshed out a little bit more. The short answer to the question is this. Why is the ark so significant? The ark is part of a larger category in Scripture that is known as holy things. Holy things. Consider Numbers chapter 4. In that chapter, God describes the duties of the Kohathites, right? one of the subsections of the Levites. And, and He t- says to them, The service that the Kohathites shall render to me is with regard to the most holy things. Right? And then He goes on to list what some of those holy things are, and He tells them what their duties are in relationship to it, how they're to cover it, how they're to carry it, and so on. But in that list of holy things, and there's a, a fairly long list, the very first thing mentioned among them is the ark. The ark is one of the holy things. And so understanding what holy things are and what differentiates them from other things is essential to understanding 1 Samuel 6. And as it turns out, explaining the significance of the holy things, while it may seem like it wouldn't take that long and it's fairly straightforward, actually requires us to open a really large theological can. And it's one that touches really not only on some of the deeper issues in in Scripture, but but really some of the deeper discussions that are had within Reformed theology as a whole. And often, however, this this subject is is really not worked out explicitly on a pew-wide level, but I think we ought to to consider doing that. And as I was thinking about how to explain this, how to explain the concept of holy things and their opposite, I realized that there was no way that I was going to be able to do that adequately and give you all the background material that we need to cover and then exegete this text and make application all in under 60 minutes to get us out of here on time. And so what, here's, here's how we're going to approach this. We are not going to go through 1 Samuel chapter 6 today. We're not going to go through it. Put it to the side. What we're actually going to do is we're going to take two sermons, which are, given their nature, probably going to feel a lot like lectures. But we're going to take two sermons and we're going to work through some necessary background. I promise you I would not do this if I really didn't think it was important. I don't want to give you too much extraneous information, but this is an important subject, and it's one that I hope, as we see in the next couple of sessions, has extreme practical importance. All right, so going back to Numbers chapter 4, we see that there is a category in Scripture for things that are holy or separated to the Lord. In that text, the ark, the lampstand, the altar, the priest, the tent of meeting are all considered holy things. They've been designated as holy. And that implies that God is placing a designation on those things that is not applicable to other things. The ark was not the only wooden box in Israel. The lampstand of the tabernacle was not the only lampstand in Israel. The tabernacle was not the only tent. The table of the bread of presence was not the only table and not the only bread present in Israel. And yet, those things are called holy, and all those other things which are similar to the holy things are not designated as holy. So if you have one category of things that are called holy, then what term would we use to describe the other things 
that are not given that designation? What is the opposite of holy? Now, our first answer might be, we might be tempted to say, well, the opposite of holy is sinful, right? Now, there's an aspect of holiness that does encompass the idea of morality and ethics, whose opposite would be sinfulness. The opposite of moral holiness would be sinfulness. And while that's true, there is a broader definition of holiness, of which ethical holiness is only a sub-component. And in that broader definition of holiness, the opposite of holy is not necessarily sinful, but it is an idea known as common or commonness. The opposite of something holy is common. To illustrate that, consider the words that God speaks to Aaron after he's just slayed Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. In light of that tragedy, God looks at Aaron and he says, Listen, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the clean and the unclean. And you are to teach the people of Israel my statutes. Now notice something in what God says there. As part of the duties of the priest, they are called to make certain distinctions. One distinction is something called the clean versus unclean distinction. Clean versus unclean. Now what does that particular distinction point to? Well, that distinction is meant to point out the need to discern between sin and righteousness. The idea of clean versus unclean has its correspondence in reality to the distinction between sin and righteousness. You know, in the ceremonial law, things were declared clean or unclean. And you would become unclean or contract an uncleanliness based on some actions that you would take, right? If you you were to uh, touch a dead body, if you were to... As a woman, menstruate. If you were to uh, defecate, if you were to uh, contract leprosy, all of those things would make you ceremonially unclean. And it was as if you had contracted a particular defilement that needed to be then removed or purged from your system. And that purging was done by sacrifice along with other ceremonies. But a sacrifice was required in order to atone for the contracted defilement. Why did God set it up that way? Because he was trying to paint a picture of sin's uh, contamination or pollution of the soul and the fact that the only way to deal with that uncleanness of the soul is by sacrifice. Sin must be atoned for through something shedding its blood. So that's the clean-unclean distinction. It was meant to teach people the difference between sin and righteousness. But that's different from this other distinction that they were supposed to make. That distinction is the holy and the common. And the meaning of this distinction is not to be found upon sin versus righteousness grounds. That's the clean versus unclean distinction. The meaning of this distinction is to be found in something else. And since the ark is part of holy things, then we need to understand what is meant by the biblical distinction between holy and common things in order to understand the ark. Now, as I've studied this, I've become convinced that the the concept of holy things versus common things is is one of the more foundational or pervasive ideas in Scripture, and it has massive implications for your understanding of a number of Christian doctrines. And don't say that lightly. Everything from your view of covenant to kingdom to marriage to the government or the civil magistrate, the church, culture and society, eschatology, ecclesiology, the sacraments, daily work and vocation, in or out of the home, your children, recreational activity, the basic use of your time, are all things that will be impacted by what you do with this idea of holy versus common, whether you're conscious of it or not. It has enormous practical significance for the way you view God, yourself, and the world around you and all of its features. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to give you the broad conclusion that we're going to seek to illustrate, and then we'll seek to actually go in and defend it. Very often when someone's is explaining something to you, it's very helpful to have the conclusion stated ahead of time so that as we're walking through the stuff, you can always be keeping in mind, how does what we're talking about help to push us toward that conclusion? That was always helpful for me in any area of education. So here's the conclusion. The idea of the holy and the common is the Bible's way of distinguishing between the nature and the purpose of the two different kingdoms or spheres that exist in the post-fall world and for distinguishing between the things that belong to those respective kingdoms. Let me summarize that again. The idea of the holy versus the common is the Bible's way of referring to the two different kingdoms that exist in the post-fall world and for helping us to distinguish 
what belongs to which. Now, in order to see that, we're going to do the following. Here's going to be our order of examination. First, we're going to define what holy means in this context. Then we're going to see how the concepts of holiness and kingdom have always been related. Then we will show that in the fall, a non-holy common kingdom was introduced by God into the world. And then we're going to trace the relationship between the holy and common kingdoms throughout redemptive history. And I've organized this, uh, these next two sermon lectures around four points that will kind of help us to go through this chronologically through the Bible. Here are the four broad points. We're going to look at creation and the holy, the holy and the fall, the holy and Israel, and the holy and the new covenant. We're going to only tackle the first two of those today. Creation and the holy, and the holy and the fall. The next two we'll, we'll cover next time. So then, let's begin. Creation and the holy. Now we'll define holiness here and show its relationship to the concept of kingdom. First, the first place that we see the concept of holy things is actually in creation itself. As we noted earlier, the, the word holy can have reference to ethics and morality, to righteousness. But again, there's this broader aspect of holiness. And in some ways, most of us are familiar with it. It's the idea of something being set apart, right? That's, that's part of what holiness means, being set apart unto God. And while oftentimes people will say that, to be holy is to be set apart, they kind of stop there most times. But the, we need to actually go a little bit further and say, what does that mean? Because there's an aspect of this, what we might call positional holiness, being set apart into a different position. That's not brought out as often as it needs to be. When God declares something as set apart as holy... It's not just saying he really likes that thing or that he's made it morally clean or morally pure. Those may be involved. But rather, the thing itself being declared holy is God's way of saying that it partakes of or will partake of the eschatological state of glory. Glory. Or it typifies something that will. When God declares something as holy... Part of that is that he's setting it apart unto a final purpose, that it is to advance to something. And that something is glorification. I'll seek to vindicate that in just a moment. Now we see this idea of, of holiness clearly by examining the kingdom order that God created for Adam. We do this very often. We go back and we have to start at the beginning. Creation from the very beginning had a goal, right? This first part is, is stuff that we've said before. Creation had a goal. It had something it was working toward. And we see this in several ways. When Adam was put into the garden, as we've said, he, he was given a task. He wasn't just put there to hang out. God tells him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We call that the dominion mandate. Adam was charged with building the kingdom of God upon the earth. He was to subdue all of creation. And that meant taking the substance of the created world which God had given him, and he would form it and furnish it and fashion it and shape it and develop it for God, He would build something out of what God had given him. And that something was the city or the kingdom of God. And this kingdom that Adam was to build would be composed of numerous things. All of them derived from Adam's work and labor. Adam was charged with developing a race of image bearers, right, through procreation. So within this kingdom you would have a population. You would have image bearers who would make it up. There would also be concepts of society. An order of governance. There would be culture with presumably music and arts and, and economic enterprise and literature, a sacred literature of praise to God. It would have a history as it unfolded, which you could chronicle. And it would have a cult of worship. It would have a central worship point, And all within it would be dedicated to the worship of God. But he was to build something. And it would have, it would have a culture and a society and many aspects to it. Now, what term would we use to describe that kingdom? To answer, consider this. The kingdom that he was charged with building was not just meant to be built and then continue its, in its whatever form that would be forever and ever and ever unto eternity. God had promised that the entire created order, the entire created order that Adam subdued and fashioned for God would be blessed with something, a higher mode of existence. We call this in theology Glorification. The promise that God gave to Adam of eternal glorified life applied not only... This is, this is where I think a lot of, us, or a lot of times people, people miss out on something. The, the promise that God gave to Adam of life was not just a promise that Adam's soul and potentially all the souls of other human beings would be glorified. It wasn't limited to just mankind. 
It was applicable to the entire work of his hands, be it the physical product of the city of God or the cultural achievements, such as art and music and industry and literature. Everything that Adam built, including Adam himself, was subject to this promise of glory. How do we know that? Am I just saying that? First, we have in the garden the tree of life, right? And the tree was a promise. And Revelation 2, 7 tells us the meaning of God putting that tree there. Christ says, to those who overcome, I will give of the right to eat of the tree of life. In what context? Entering eternal glory. So inherently, with the, connected with the tree of life is the promise of glory. That's how Christ interprets it. So we know that God was holding forth eternal life to mankind. But did this also apply to all of creation and to the kingdom that was produced by Adam's hands? Yes, it was. How do we see that? In the Sabbath sign. What was the Sabbath? The Sabbath was God entering into rest in what state? Eternal glory. It was God's entrance into and rest in and enthronement in His own eternal glory in the heavenly temple. It was glory rest. And He did it in order to delight Himself. He works, then He enters into His Sabbath rest of glory, and He delights Himself. But the Sabbath was God delighting in what? Man only? No. All of the works of His hands. Everything that God had made, He delighted in when He entered into Sabbath rest. And so the Sabbath was connected to all of God's work of creation, not just the man himself. It was applicable to everything. Now, only man could ritually observe the Sabbath ordinance, but all of creation was within its purview from the very beginning. And the Sabbath also set the historical course for all of creation. It was a pattern that all of creation was meant to follow. Just as God worked and entered Sabbath rest, all of creation, led by the vice-regent Adam, would follow that same pattern of fulfilling its intended purpose and then joining God in eternal glorified rest. And you can also see this same idea by just considering what the second Adam does. Does the second Adam come and only bestow uh, the, the concept of glory upon human souls? No. That's why the New Testament speaks of a new heavens and a new earth that will all be a part of this kingdom of eternal glory. It's not just men. It's everything. But here's the key. In placing the Sabbath sign, because we're trying to connect this to the idea of holiness, in placing the Sabbath sign over all of the works of His hands, God was declaring something about the creation itself. Consider, in Genesis 2 and verse 3, it says, God blessed the Sabbath day, and what did He call it? He called it holy. He declared it holy. And remember, what is the Sabbath? This is, you've got to make this connection, so I'm going to try and go a little slow. The Sabbath is entrance into glory. So God looks at His own act of entering into glory, and He says, that, Sabbath, that's holy. God enters into glory, it is declared holy. And then God turns and applies the Sabbath sign to all of creation, and so in so doing, God himself equates all of creation with the designation holy. Holy. When God stamps the Sabbath on all of creation, he stamps the designation holy on all of it. We still haven't defined it fully, but we will. Now what does that establish for us? That in the beginning, and this is very important, all of creation was a part of the kingdom of God. All of it was subject to the kingdom of the Lord. And it was all declared holy to him. There was one kingdom in the world, and it was destined to be glorified through the federal headship of Adam as he fulfilled the dominion mandate. One kingdom, everything within it, designated holy because it's designated for eternal glory. Now, when I say everything in creation, I literally mean everything. From its physical aspects, such as the earth and the seas and the trees and the fields, all the way to, to the being of mankind, to, to marriage, to cultural endeavors, societies and civilizations, family, children, work, worship, all of it was designated wholly to the Lord because all of it had been given a final purpose. So to summarize, holiness in its broadest sense involves the designation of being set apart for glory. And in the beginning... God gave that designation of holy with all of its significance to the entire kingdom of creation. Now, we move on to the idea of the principle of kingdom building. There's one more thing that we need to note about this kingdom arrangement prior to the fall, before we consider the fall. And it's this. 
this kingdom of God, which was encompassing of everything and all was holy, operated on a certain principle. One that defined the means by which it would unfold and achieve its purpose and be successful and then enter into glory. And here's the principle that it operated on. This is very important. God, through the law, promised mankind blessings for obedience and a curse for disobedience. As mankind obeyed the law, the Lord would voluntarily bless the work of His hands by reciprocating a blessing unto him in his life and his work. As, as, God, as he obeyed, God would cause the earth to yield its increase to him. God would cause mankind's uh, food to come up and his sustenance to be maintained. He would cause the labor of his hands to be successful as he went about building and shaping and fashioning the world for God's kingdom. His work would be a delight and a joy. And the blessings would extend to all aspects of his life. Marriage would be a wonderful joy to him. There would be perfect happiness between men and women as they carried out their roles and they obeyed God's law. The animal kingdom would submit to him and be useful for his labors. And his worship would be sweet communion with God that would fulfill all the desires of the soul as God created it. As he obeyed, God would bless in every aspect of his life. Blessing, blessing, blessing prosperity, success. The kingdom would be built as God gave the blessing in response to man's obedience. Now keep that in mind. It's very important. The original holy kingdom operated on the principle of blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Now we come to the second section. The idea of holy and the fall. And this is where things get a little tricky sometimes. What impact does the fall have on this idea of all the world and all the works of man forming the kingdom of God and all of it being considered holy, designated for a specific end-time purpose? Your answer here will have major consequences for your view of a lot of things. I'm going to provide again the answer up front to the question, then we'll seek to vindicate it. How does the fall impact everything we've just said? In response to the fall, God does several things. He delays the curse of the law, the ultimate curse of the law, until a future point. He promises redemption through a Messiah. And then He introduces a non-holy, what we might call common kingdom, into the world. The purpose of which is to preserve the world, humanity, and civilization as a whole so that redemption can be accomplished. But the ordained end of this new kingdom that is introduced is not eternal glory, but it is destined to pass away at the end of time. Now let me try and vindicate what I just said through looking at Genesis 3 and Genesis 9. What should have been the consequence of Adam's sin as soon as he fell? If God were to bring the full weight of the curse of the law to bear right then and there, what would happen? Immediate placement under the eternal wrath of God. It's over. He's gone. He's cast into hell all of eternity spent under the wrath of God. If God brought the full weight of the law to bear right then and there, guess what would have happened? Human history would have ceased. The world would have been destroyed. And mankind would have been no more. That would have been it. There would have been no more humans. Two people cast into the eternal depths of hell. And it's over. It's done. The city of God would not have been built. The dominion mandate would go unfulfilled. And there would be no glorification of the entire kingdom order, man and everything that he built. That's what would happen if God brought the full weight of the law to bear right then. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. Through his actions in Genesis 3, God shows us that he is actually postponing the final judgment. There is still coming a day of the Lord. The prophets speak about it often. There is still coming that final curse of the law when history will be ended and hell will be inaugurated for those who are outside of Christ. But it's not now. It's not now. It's in the future. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. This section of Scripture is incredibly significant. God intends that the world will go on. He's delayed judgment, so therefore the world is going to go on. But there's a problem. Sin has now entered the equation. And sin infects human hearts. And as the Apostle Paul tells us, the entire created order is subject to futility and bondage as a result of sin. Sin infects everything. 
And sin is an inherently destructive force. And so if nothing happens, then even if God delays the final judgment and allows mankind to go on in a sinful condition, what's going to happen? Humanity, raptured and lost up in his sin, will inevitably destroy himself almost immediately. And if that happens, there will once again be no civilization, there will be no Son of God, there will be no redemption, because there's going to be nothing to redeem. We couldn't even get out of the first generation without murders taking place. If God does nothing at this point and just lets sinful man go in the fullness of the depravity of his heart, it's still over. It's still over. So what do we need? We need a solution to the problem of the world needing to be able to continue on the one hand, and on the other hand, sin now existing in the world, which tends towards destruction. We need something to be introduced that though it may not eliminate sin entirely out of the world, will at least restrain the effects of sin from exercising their full destructive powers. Something that will allow for human beings to be able to live, to procreate, to eat, to work, to build societies, and to construct all of the necessary infrastructure that will support human life going on in this world. And yet for all that to be able to happen while sin still is in the midst of everything. So in order to provide that answer, God introduces a new order into the world. It's a new type of kingdom or sphere, and it's not one that is governed by the same principle that Adam's kingdom was governed by. Blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. And it's also not destined for the same end of eternal glory. In Reformed theology, you may have heard some of these terms, we call this new sphere the common sphere, and we call the principle that it operates on common grace. Now, very often people will hedge, and I will hedge too on that term, and say a better term is probably common blessings or common mercy, so that the term grace can be used exclusively for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I'm good with that. But the principle that this new kingdom operates on is something called common grace or common mercy. We'll develop that idea in just a second. But first we need to establish, does God actually introduce a new kingdom into the world? Does he introduce something new in light of the fall? Well, the best way to see that there really is a new kingdom or sphere introduced into the world is to look at what God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to ask the question, how does what God says to Adam and Eve here about the way that the world is now going to operate differ from the way that the world previously operated prior to the fall in the original kingdom? And the first thing that we will note is that in this new world order, there are now going to be two types of men that live together. That's a simple observation. There's not going to be two types of men. In the pre-fall kingdom, there's only one type of man, an unfallen human. Now, as soon as God regenerates someone, and as soon as Adam and Eve produce their first offspring, Cain, you've got two types of people in the world. Some who are regenerate, some who are unregenerate. That's the first distinction. There's now two types of men. The second difference between these two uh, kingdoms, pre- and post-fall, is in the relationship that both of these types of men, regenerate and unregenerate, will experience between their obedience to the law and their enjoyment of temporal blessings or their experience of temporal curses. There's going to be a difference in the way that men receive blessings and the way that they experience curses in this life. Now, we're not talking about ultimate judgment here. That's already been rendered. When God said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. We're only talking about blessings and cursings that are to be experienced in this life. I'll show you what I mean. For Adam... His experience of temporal blessings was a direct function of his obedience to God's law. He obeys. He receives children and food and pleasure and prosperity in the work of his hands. He disobeys. It's all taken from him. But look at what God says in Genesis chapter 3. He comes to Adam and Eve and he announces what some of the consequences of their sin are going to be. But I want you to notice, everything he mentions here in this section that we're going to read, all of it is related to temporal blessings consequences to their sin in the context of living in the world. Listen to what he says to Eve, starting in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be, I'm going to translate, against your husband. You can see the footnote down there. And he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have not listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Here's your curses. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you'll eat the plants of the field. 
and by the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So let's summarize. What are the temporal consequences of sin that are now going to be experienced by mankind? Well, we have death and pain and the bringing forth of children. We have hostility in the relationships between men and women. Difficulty in getting basic necessities of life to come forth from the earth, like food and raw materials. There will be distress and difficulty in labor and vocation. Work's not going to be pleasant anymore. And the certainty of physical death now hangs over all men. Every single one of those things is promised right here in Genesis 3. But all of it is related to life in this world. But notice, the fact that God is actually addressing the things that will define man's life in this world from this point forward demonstrates that God is setting up an order by which this fallen world will operate. That's what he's doing here. He's setting up the paradigm or the dynamics by which this new post-fall world will operate. And notice something else. Though everything presented here in Genesis 3 is worded in the form of a curse, here are all the curses you're going to experience. In every one of them, a blessing is presupposed. You may have never thought of it that way. But consider it. Mankind deserves to be in hell. That's where he should be. He's not supposed to get anything at this point. He's supposed to get hell. He deserves nothing at all. And yet here God comes, and even though he announces there will be pain and there will be death, what does that assume in reference to children? Even though the children are going to die sometimes, there will still be children. There will still be children. There will be strife between men and women, but there will be marriage. And the earth will strive against mankind and his attempt to receive his sustenance from it, but there will still be food. Vocations might be difficult and unpleasant at times, but there's still going to be commerce and economic enterprise and material goods and the basic things that man needs. There will be wars and rumors of wars, but there will be civilization. There will be society. There will be a structure. And mankind doesn't deserve any of that, not one bit of it. And yet it presupposed in everything God says is that he is going to give them many of those things in spite of what they deserve. So in this fallen world, there will be temporal curses and pain and difficulty. And sin and its curses will tend toward destruction and death. But implicit in what God announces is the recognition that there will be something to offset that. There will be curses, but there will also be blessings. And in fact, the blessings will come in to counteract those curses so that the curses cannot carry out their full, deadly, destructive weight on the whole human race. There will be restraint. There will be a constant interplay between the experience of blessings on the one hand and curses on the other. And remember, this is important, we mentioned in the post-fall world that there are two different types of men. But it is assumed here in Genesis 3 that all of these blessings and all of these curses that God announced are things that will be experienced by both sets of men. Both kinds of men will have children die in infancy. Both kinds of men will experience disease and famine and warfare and spousal strife. But both kinds of men will also experience economic prosperity. Both will experience marriage. Both will experience family. Both will experience recreation. Both will get blessings and cursings. Now, in order to demonstrate that this world order or kingdom that emerges after the fall is something different than the kingdom of God that existed prior to the fall, we ask this question. Upon what basis will these common blessings and cursings be experienced by both sets of men? What is it that's going to determine who gets what and how they get it in terms of blessing? If the kingdom of the post-fall world operates on the same principle as the pre-fall world, then the answer to that question is this, that men's experience of blessings in this life will bear a direct relationship to their degree of obedience to God's law. His experience of temporal curses will bear a direct relation to his disobedience to God's law. If that were the principle upon which this world now operates, what would you expect? That regenerate, godly saints who by definition obey God's law to a greater degree at the very least than unregenerate men, those kinds of people who are more obedient would get what? Full barns, prosperous homes, superior health, an easier time at work and at conception and childbearing and rearing. And you would be able to look at the wicked who are relatively more disobedient and you would be able to clearly discern that they are in a lower condition 
They're poor, right? They're always sick. There's always problems going on in their house. They are quicker to die than regenerate men are. You would be able to distinguish who is regenerate and who is unregenerate by the reception of their blessings or their cursings in this life. If it operates on the same principle, there's no way to avoid that. Those who obey more get more blessings. That's the inescapable conclusion of the pre-fall principle. But you'll notice that that's not what we find. Your experience tells you that, of course, but the Bible lays it out very clearly. Right after Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 and 5, we have uh, the following of two different lines of people. The Canaanite line, who are wicked, and on the other hand, the godly line in Genesis 5. Right? And what do you notice? The wicked line goes forth, and what do they do? They build a kingdom, right? and they experience music and culture, and they have civilization and society, and they get food to come out of the ground. Right? And then in, in uh, Genesis 5, you follow the, the, the godly line. And the point is, they're experiencing the same cursings and the same blessings. Both build civilizations. Both have families. Both have food. Both have blessings. And both experience all the difficulties of life in this fallen world. Genesis 4 and 5 lays it right out there. Two different groups. And yet, as they go forth in this life, they experience the same types of things. And so there is a new principle at work respecting how one receives blessings and cursings in this life. How then... Is it determined who receives what? This is important. It is up to the sovereign providence of God in his own will as he bestows things according to his good pleasure. And he does so without necessary direct examination of one's obedience to his law. That's what we call common grace or common mercy. Common blessings available to all and God administers them according to his own sovereign pleasure. We see this throughout the scripture. You think of Psalm 73. What's the psalmist? He looks around and he goes, God, the wicked, they're prosperous. They're rich. They live long. They don't seem to have a lot of these troubles that I have. How can that be? How do I make sense of this? What is assumed in the psalmist's quandary? That in his mind, there's a more natural relationship that ought to be operating between the reception of blessings and cursings. And it should be I should be able to look out and see those wicked people disobeying God's law, and they should be getting constant curses. And I, and those like me in our righteousness, we should be receiving blessing. And the fact that the psalmist can look out and see that that's not the case proves that the reception of blessings and cursings is not, in this life, a direct function of obedience to God's law. Something has changed. Christ even affirms this clearly. Right? He says it in the Gospels. You are to love your enemies. Why? Because God sends His rain and His sunshine on the just and the unjust. Think about what that means. Sunshine and rain are blessings, right? You you can't have life. You can't have crops. You can't have food without both of them. And yet, God gives it to the unjust just as much as He does the just. If the other principle was in operation, God would have to be hiding the sunshine from the, the field of the ungodly person as a curse on their immediate sins. And He would be constantly prospering the gardens of the righteous. And yet, Christ affirms... God's not administering these things on the basis to obedience to the law. He gives it according to his pleasure. That's very different from the pre-fall kingdom. Now quickly, just one note, because this, this may come up as an objection. We're not saying, common grace is not saying that there is now never the possibility of any connection between somebody receiving a, a temporal curse or a temporal blessing and their actions in relationship to God's law. Th- think of the sexually promiscuous man. He goes around and sleeps with 15 different women. He contracts a disease, one of those diseases. His disease is a part of the curse of sin, right? We all agree on that. And you can say pretty clearly that his experience of that curse is directly tied to some actions that he performed in disobedience to God's law. That does happen. But the point is this. God is free to bring cursings and blessings on a person as a result of their actions, but there's not a necessary causal relationship. Because even though you may be able to point to one man who got that sexually transmitted disease for his promiscuity, there's 50,000 others who may not have. If there was a necessary causal connection, they would all have to be receiving these curses. Some do, some don't. Sometimes it is a result of their disobedience that God brings a curse. But he's not bound to. That's the point. Sometimes he doesn't bring the full weight of the curses to bear. Same thing with a righteous person. A righteous person may spend their entire life working and, and... Uh, being obedient in their vocation. And they may never experience economic flourishing. Never. 
And a wicked person who just steals and defrauds other people may be rich and prosperous as the world defines those things. Sometimes God can bless because of obedience, but he doesn't have to. Whereas in the prior kingdom, there was a necessary connection between those things. Now, why is, why is this new method of administering cursings and blessings in this way necessary? What's, what's the point here? Why does God have to change it and make the world operate in this new way? Because men are sinful. It's really quite simple. Men are sinful. Men are born in sin. They're totally depraved. And we say all the time, we are nothing but sin. And so if you, have, if you allow a race of humans who are nothing but sin to go out into the world and you keep the same pre-fall principle of cursings for disobedience, what's going to happen? The only thing they're going to receive is curses because all they're going to do is disobey. But if all they receive is curses, then there's no food and there's no sustenance and there's no civilization. And once again, what happens? Life is destroyed. So if God's going to preserve the world order for sinful men, there has to be a change in the way that they receive these blessings and these curses. So that's the first way we see that God has introduced a new kingdom into the world as a result of the fall. It's a kingdom that is shared by or common to believers and unbelievers. Both types of people inhabit it. And kingdoms operate according to a principle of relation between man and God. And a new principle has been introduced that governs this new post-fall kingdom. Now, before examining the second piece of evidence that a new kingdom has been introduced, I want you to consider this about this new common kingdom that exists in the post-fall world. What are some of the structures and features that are a part of this kingdom? What composes it? If this new kingdom realm is designed to preserve the world and mankind, what are some things that God's going to put into it for that purpose, to, to actually make that happen? Structures and features are things that God institutes within this new kingdom for the believer and the unbeliever for the purpose of restraining man's sin, providing stability in the world, and ensuring that life will go on. Here are some of them. Marriage. And the family unit. You can't have the propagation of the race and a basic modicum of stability in social life without it. And so God has marriage and family continue on in this kingdom. Uh, you also have the civil magistrate. There must be punishment for sin and wickedness. If there's no civil magistrate, then there's anarchy. Lawlessness abounds. And once again, there's no stuck structure in the world. So the civil magistrate is a part of this common realm for the purpose of preserving the world order. The dominion mandate, and we'll talk more about this in a second is also reintroduced, right? Culture and civilization has to be developed. There has to be labor and economic enterprise. If you're going to need shelter, right, from the storm and the rain in order to survive, you're going to need some economic enterprise. You're going to need some industry. And so all of these things are introduced into this common kingdom, and both believers and unbelievers share them. So then we come to the second, and this is the last, the second reason or uh, way of seeing that a new kingdom has been introduced. Something new has happened here. Second way we see it is by examining the purpose or the end destiny that God gives to this new kingdom sphere. And we're going to note how it differs from the original pre-fall kingdom. What we see is that this new kingdom order, unlike the pre-fall kingdom, is temporary in nature. And it does not continue in or result in eternal glory as the original one was destined to do. Remember, God has instituted this for what purpose? Because He's delayed judgment. So that the promised seed can come. So Genesis 3 already carries within it the implicit assumption that the purpose of this new kingdom, if it's for preserving the world, is to do what? To last until that purpose is fulfilled. Once the promised seed has come and fulfilled his work, the purpose of having the world order continue is over. And so there's already an implicit time marker placed on this kingdom by the purpose that God gives to it. This is made explicit in Genesis chapter 9, right? God institutes the common sphere here in Genesis 3. And then in the flood, he destroys the world. Oh. And now Noah and his family emerge out of the ark, and they're, they're back into the world. And so the question naturally arises, so it, it, is the whole world order or kingdom that God introduced in Genesis 3 like still applicable now into this new world that we're emerging into? Is it going to be the same? And the answer that God gives is an emphatic Yes, 
Noah and his family get off the ark, and what does God do? He reaffirms the existence of many of the things that we already saw in Genesis 3. He reaffirms the existence of the civil magistrate who must bear the sword when he tells him, you know, by man, if man kills someone, by man should his blood be shed. He reinstitutes this dominion mandate by commanding Noah and all of mankind to go out into the world and to work and to labor and subdue the earth, right, which carries the assumption of civilizations. And because sin is still in the world, all of this will happen for both believers and unbelievers alike. And God even reaffirms that He will give His blessing to all the world, the blessing of rain and sunshine and marriage and family. As, and notice what He says here uh, explicitly at, at the end of the, the Noahic covenant. He says that even though all these things will last between believer and unbeliever, it is only intended to be a kingdom that lasts for a certain time, as long as the earth remains. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22, God addresses Noah and He says, While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. Everything necessary for mankind will be given in, a, in, the, in the fallen world that God is bringing them into, but He's put a time marker on it. He's put a time marker on it. How long will this order last? As long as the earth does. And once the final judgment that was delayed in Genesis 3 is brought to bear and the heavens are burned up, this kingdom order that God is describing here passes away. Its purpose is served. Now, why do we go through all that? Because here's the punchline. Now we have something in creation that is not destined for eternal glory. There's now something in creation that has a, a finite time marker on it and the sentence of passing away passed upon it. That wasn't true prior to the fall. Now we have something that will not last. And if being designated to eternal glory means being set apart as holy, then whatever this world order is that God describes with Genesis 9, all of its features, including its governments, its societies, its labor, its culture, whatever it is, it's not holy. It's not destined to partake of glory. It does not receive the stamp of holy upon it. It is a different thing. It is temporary in nature. That's why we call it the common kingdom. It's not the holy kingdom. It's the common kingdom shared between believers and unbelievers. It's not the kingdom of glory. It's not a kingdom that is destined to partake in eternal existence. I'm going to have to skip one section there. Now, let's consider real quickly some of the post-fall changes to these institutions that we've already observed. This is a very important observation. Many of the features of this common grace sphere are things that God actually instituted at creation as part of the Adamic kingdom, right? Marriage, dominion, work, childbearing, authority, culture and society. All of those were pre-fall phenomenon. And yet God carries them over into this post-fall world, into this post-fall kingdom. But what's the implicit assumption? All of them have therefore undergone a modification. They've all undergone some kind of change. Take, for example, the dominion mandate. In the dominion mandate that God gave to Adam, the point of taking dominion was so that everything that he took dominion over would be able to partake in glory. But then God comes to Noah and he repeats a similar charge. Go forth into the earth, take, take dominion, subdue it, you know, bring everything under uh, the sway of mankind. But there's something that's conspicuously absent the whole time. And it's the promise of the Sabbath. The promise of the Sabbath is not placed upon mankind and all of his labors in the post-fall world. Now, the Sabbath still is a part of God's moral law, but the promise related to the Sabbath is something that will actually only pertain to the Messiah and his kingdom. And in fact, God promises the exact opposite of the blessing of the Sabbath to this new post-fall world because he says that everything that man builds and accomplishes here is meant to pass away. It will not partake in Sabbath rest. So the dominion mandate exists. We are to go forth into the world, and we are to take these things. But what's the purpose? Are we establishing something that will exist into glory? No, the purpose has been changed. What is that purpose now? Survival, just to put it bluntly. Now, that may be a bit of a crude way to say it. But the point is, we have to preserve the world order so that the kingdom of God may go forth in the world. And how do we do that? We have to take dominion. We have to, we have to form and to fashion the world. There has, we have to build things. We have to provide an infrastructure for this world to carry on. And so we are to take dominion over the world. But the promise of it all being glorified is now absent 
in this post-fall kingdom. So the dominion mandate, for example, has been modified. There are other things that have been modified in the post-fall world. Take children, for example. The children that were born in the original kingdom were holy to the Lord because they were the substance of humanity right? that was destined for glory. Every child that was born had the designation holy to the Lord, holy to the Lord, holy to the Lord stamped upon him or would have. Why? Because they were forming the human race that was all destined to glory. But we come into the post-fall world and, and the children that are born to us are, and to unbelievers, they're not born holy in that way. It's not just saying that they're sinners if they don't have ethical holiness. That's true. But there's another meaning to that. They are not automatically, by necessity, stamped with the designation going to eternal glory. They are not set apart to the Lord as they come forth from the womb. That's true of both believers and unbelievers. So our children are a little bit different than they were. Children, marriage has taken on a new role or a new meaning after the fall. Same thing with the state and the civil magistrate. We'll get into this a lot more next time. Right? The civil magistrate is meant to enforce civic righteousness between men in order to preserve society from the effects of sin. But he's not head over the kingdom of God, which will be glorified like the original monarch, Adam, was. He has a temporal purpose. We'll, we'll kind of define more of what that is because that's a big area. Next time. So what all this implies is that the things that are inherent to this realm, to this kingdom order, are not meant to achieve glory. They will all pass away. Now I know, that's been a lot, and that was just really part of the information that we, that we could have given, but to, to summarize everything we said before we start moving toward a conclusion. After the post-fall world, God, or in the post-fall world, God introduces a new kingdom order into the world, shared by both believers and unbelievers. It's common to both, where temporal blessings and temporal cursings will be experienced by both groups in a way not of necessity tied to their obedience. And the purpose of this is to preserve the world until the day of judgment so that history may continue and the redemption of the Messiah can be accomplished. It is not the kingdom of God. There are now two kingdoms that operate in this world. Now, an important clarification. That does not mean that the common kingdom, in and of itself considered, is an inherently sinful or bad thing. Much of what composes it may be the human beings that make it up, but God establishes this. It's God's creation. He instituted it for a specific purpose. It is a legitimate thing. And that's going to become important in some of the applications that we're going to draw in the coming weeks. The common kingdom, which you operate in, is legitimate. It's not an inherently sinful thing. We need to keep that in mind. Now, why did I take the time to go through all that? Because when the Bible speaks of common things, such as the holy versus the common... It's presupposing that you understand this idea of the two different kingdoms that God instituted back in Genesis 3. And because this isn't often fleshed out very much, when people try to explain the difference between the holy and the common, we're kind of lost because we haven't done the necessary background work. Now, what I've just described to you is something called Reformed Two-Kingdom Theology. There is a, there's another view in Reformed Theology that, that sort of denies the existence of the common realm and sees everything in the post-fall world as part of the kingdom of God and that it only needs to be cleaned up and Christianized because it is all destined to eternal glory. And we'll talk more about that in the coming sessions. Before we draw to our, our, our last conclusion, real quickly, what most of our discussion has been focused on so far is, is proving the idea that there is a common kingdom that has been introduced after the fall. But what about the concept of the holy? How does the idea of holy carry over into the post-fall world? We said that the common sphere was introduced as a means of preserving the world for the purpose that the Messiah may come, that redemption unto glory in the promised seed can take place. So we do see the concept of the holy continue after the fall. And how do we know that? Because God has determined, even after the fall, to set something apart to himself to designate it as holy and therefore of participating in eternal glory. But what is it? What does God set apart for that purpose? Prior to the fall, it was everything. But after the fall, we see God coming in Genesis 3 to set apart individuals as holy unto the Lord through salvation and redemption. And where is the first place we see that? In Genesis chapter 3. After God promises that the seed of the woman will come, that redemption will be accomplished in this one Messiah who will give life and will undo the curse of death, 
What is Adam's immediate response to God's words? He turns to his wife and he says, Eve, which means life. That was his profession of faith in God's promise, that life would come through the Messiah. He vocalizes his faith. And we might say in the, in the context of Genesis 15, and God counted it to him as righteousness. He regenerated him, right? He set him apart as holy. And so once again, Adam has that designation of holy placed upon him after the fall. It's stamped back on him. Why? Because once again, he is, uh, his eschatological telos, his goal, the thing he's working toward now, is glory. He's not destined for eternal perdition or to pass away. Now, does that mean that only men will be a part of the eternal holy kingdom? No. We'll discuss that more. But there you have it. There's two kingdoms or realms that exist in the world after the fall. One holy, one common, one instituted, both instituted by God, and both perfectly legitimate for the purposes that God has instituted them for. Now, there are lots of things that still remain. Lots of things. This was just an introduction. I thank you for... Bearing with me, I always hate when I, when I give what I feel is basically just a lecture, but I didn't know any other way besides to just give you this information, essentially. But I do want to, even though we, we won't be able to draw a lot of specific applications right now, because there's still some more groundwork that needs to be laid in order for the applications to be intelligible, I do want to give a little conclusion and exhort you to, to how you should think in light of all this. Consider the way that you view the relationship of the church and the world. Oftentimes to us, it seems, I know I, get, I fall into this all the time, when we, when we consider ourselves, whether it be this congregation, or even if you want to universalize it to the church around the world right now, we think of ourselves as a very small, insignificant, and fairly anonymous group of people, at least from the perspective of the world. Especially, it's easy to come to a congregation like this, where there's not that many of us, and we can say, yeah, we're, we're not really special in the eyes of the world. Uh, if we start counting up the amount of people, there's not really that many people, relatively speaking, in this room. And then we go out into the world and we see the world doing big things, right? They're building skyscrapers. They're creating stock markets. They're constructing media empires. They're fighting wars. They're passing multi-trillion dollar stimulus bills. Right? They're creating technology. They're traveling to the moon. They're doing all kinds of big things. And then we look at ourselves and we say, I don't see anything that viscerally impressive about what we're doing here. And the world never really gives us a second thought, do they? Does the world ever really care about us? Does the world care right now? Do the people in Washington, D.C. have any concern whatsoever that we're sitting right here doing what we're doing right now? They don't. But what do we do? We very often begin to adopt the world's view of ourselves as we consider ourselves. We just think we're a tiny part in what's happening in the big world out there, the world of the common sphere where men are engaging in all of their labor and activities. And this is literally reinforced to us over and over from every angle. You turn on the nightly cable news, if anybody does that anymore. What is it filled with? It is an homage to what mankind is doing in this world. That's all it is. You turn it on, and what do you see? Amazon has just increased to the first trillion-dollar company. There's the divorce of, of billionaires now, the only people that we apparently care about. North Korea's got nuclear weapons, right? And we're worried about that. The latest iPhone release has been advertised. That's really cool. Who's going to get the next political office? Can we talk about that for 24 hours a day? Apparently so. That's all that's focused on in those contexts. It's what the world is doing. The world, the world, the world. Because it's all they care about. And we can be tempted to fall into that. But, but we have to stop and remember something. Remember, why does that whole realm that they're operating in exist? All of their obsession with politics and the civil sphere and commerce, and, and wars, and everything that they're doing, why does any of it exist? What is the meaning of it? Not according to their definition. For them, it's all for themselves. But according to Scripture's definition, the reason that that whole sphere exists, that everybody obsesses over, is so that the world can continue for the what? Higher purpose that what God is doing in the church might result in not, wow, we built a cool kingdom here, but eternal glory. That the church might be brought in. That Christ might be glorified. The reason that Amazon exists, the reason that you have an iPhone, the reason that you have a job, is because God delayed the final judgment because He was determined to bring a Messiah into the world and to redeem sinners just like you. They don't see it that way. But God does. The common world that they operate was made to allow for the creation of more and more Christians. 
That's true. How often do you think of that, though, when you're out in the world, looking at all the things within it? And we have to be in the world. It's a legitimate thing. We're called to be a part of this common realm. We'll talk a lot more about that in the, in the coming sessions. It's totally legitimate. But we have to think about it right. It has a purpose. It's subservient to the purpose of the kingdom of God in the world. So when you're out in the world, just take your, your morning drive wherever you go, whether you're a man and you're driving to work or a woman and you're, you're driving out to a store or something. Just look around you. Look around you. What do you see? Constant activity. Constant activity. Men driving everywhere. People are, people are going, they're coming, they're buying, they're selling. Uh, there's just nonstop motion. And as this, like the psalm says, at dawn mankind awakes and he goes out to his work. And then in the evening he comes right back. But it's easy for us to, to, to go out and, and to fall into their mentality. But really this has all been happening for centuries. For centuries, for millennia. Mankind has been waking up, going to labor, coming back to rest, waking up, going to work and labor. He's building something. The world's a little bit different than when he went to sleep the night before. And yet all of it exists for the purpose of Christ's kingdom so that I and you might be brought to know Christ and to dwell with him forever. The everyday activities of men and the women around me are a part. They're legitimate. They're not sinning by doing those things inherently. That's fine. But those activities are part of God's means of preserving the world so that the church might be built. The construction worker doesn't know that what he's doing in his work is being used by God as one teeny tiny microscopic piece in the broad scheme of keeping the world order sustained so that more Christians may be created by the Holy Spirit. For him, he just needs a place to live, some money in his pocket so he can get some food in his belly. That's his primary motivation normally, if we're talking about unregenerate man especially. That's the reason he's out there doing it. He doesn't think about these things, but God does. God has ordained it for a specific purpose. So ultimately, it's all about Christ all of the time. It is all about Christ all of the time. Everything around you in this world. So I just want to conclude by exhorting you to marvel at the wisdom with which God has made provision for this world to continue, even with sin in it. God somehow took an inherently destructive force that will damn men for all of eternity to the depths of his own wrath in hell and allowed for it to somehow not fully destroy everything and to continue the world so that he could bring a Messiah in. Could you come up with that wisdom? I certainly couldn't. And that's what God has done. And so we need to think of the world in that way. God won't let the world die, not until every last saint has been brought into his kingdom. Let's pray.